Salvete discipuli, discipuliae quilingue latinae, mihi valde placet tuaviscum iterum loqui, et vos pulcram linguam latinam aeternam tocere. In the last two lessons, we have looked at a variety of clauses, including conditions, stipulations, provisos, cum clauses, and purpose. In this lesson, we use our refined skills in Latin syntax to examine some examples of Roman legislation from the 5th century BCE to the 6th, 6th century CE or AD. Rome's continuous legal tradition across a millennium continues to serve as the basis of continental European law as well as inform the legal tradition of Latin America and the law of the state of Louisiana. The rest of the United States takes its start from English common law, but English and American legal traditions have not entirely escaped the influences of Roman law for both good and ill. And today, our studies of Roman law, or studia juris Romani, also offer us the opportunity to study some otherwise rare imperatives. One of the great stories in the endless struggle for human freedom justice and dignity, was the struggle of the Roman plebeians against their rulers, a hereditary class called the patricians. One of the greatest and lasting victories achieved by the plebeians was the codification of Roman law. The plebeians, who were subject to the authority of patrician magistrates, wanted to know what the rules were. It's hard to obey a law or seek its protection if you cannot consult it. Plebeian pressure uh, consisted most famously of their secessions or general strikes, and the Roman army required plebeian participation. Let us begin at the dawn of Rome's legal tradition in the 5th century BCE. Plebeian pressure succeeded in compelling the first codification of Roman law, which was, in the 450s BCE, inscribed first on ten bronze tabulae, or tablets. Another two tabulae were added for a total of twelve, which were then set up for public display. We commonly call this first codification of Roman law the Twelve Tables of Roman Law, the name deriving from the twelve bronze tablets on which the laws were originally inscribed and displayed. Cicero tells us that he had to memorize them as a schoolboy. Unfortunately, only a few fragments have come down to us, but you, my legal friends, can read these precious few fragments in the original. Let us look at two relatively complete statements. Among the fragments of the fourth table of Roman law, we find this mixed condition. Please repeat. Si pater filium ter venim duet. Filius a patre liberesto. The word duet is an older subjunctive form of the verb do dari dedi datum. Duet is present tense, third-person singular. We could modernize it as debt. But that still leaves esto, which is an odd form of the verb to be, sum esse fui futurum. 
You have not seen esto before. It's time to review briefly the future imperative which one never sees, except when one does. As, for example, when one reads Roman law, where such forms tend to crop up rather frequently. The future imperative was a bit archaic, even for the Romans, as it is for us in English too. What sounds more archaic, for example, the present tense command, do not kill, or its future equivalent, thou shalt not kill, or ye shall not kill. You have encountered the present tense commands for some, which are, for the second person, singular and plural, es and este. They both mean be, as in be proud. The future imperative has both second and third person forms in the singular and plural. The second person singular form is esto, thou shalt be. For the second person plural, we add a te, estote, ye shall be. Then there's the third person future imperative, which in the singular looks like the second person, esto. He, she, or it shall be. The plural, though, is distinctive. Sunto, they shall be. The dead giveaway of these future imperatives is the odd O on what does not look like a first-person singular. And how do we let? And how do we tell the second and third-person singulars apart? From context, let's go back to our law. Please repeat. Si pater, filium ter venum duit. Filius, a patre, liberesto. If a nominative father, pater, does something to an accusative son, filium. That much we can tell by observing the cases of pater and filius. We are dealing with family law. The word ter is an adverb that means three times. Venus veni is a rare second declension noun that means sale. We do have a derivative in English in the adjective venal. People who are willing to sell themselves are venal. And do it, we identified as the archaic equivalent of debt, present active subjunctive. The basic meaning is give. But let's make sense of the if clause. A present subjunctive verb in the if clause sets up a future less vivid condition. If a father should give sale, the son, three times. Word for word, it may have been, but a horrendous translation. Can we do better for Wainim? Do it, then give sale. How about put up for sale? If you, are if you are surprised that a father should sell his son, you might find Roman debt legislation an interesting topic. But we digress. Si pater filium ter venum do it. If daddy should put his son up for sale three times. Then what? A future command. Filius a patre liberesto. The son, Filius, shall be esto. 
Do we have any nominatives in there to complete our predicate? Indeed, liber aum, the adjective that gave us the noun liberty and the liberal arts. It means free. The son shall be free. Filius liberesto. And that's an order. But from what? A patre, free from the father. In the case of patre, ablative. This law requires a bit of explanation. There was a special term for the father of a household. We've mentioned it before. Pater familias. Familias is an archaic genitive. More modern Latin would have said pater familiae. But legal Latin was conservative. In Roman law, and earlier Roman law was especially strict, a pater familias remained the head of his household until he died. And his sons, no matter how old, whether they lived with him or not, remained a part of the extended familia until the pater died. The father's power included, in earlier Roman law, the ius occidendi, literally, the law of killing, or the right to kill a son for disobedience, and, as this fragment suggests, the right to sell his son into slavery, if, for example, the father needed to pay off his debts. But there was some relief for the son. If his father sold him three times and he worked off the debt, he was, upon satisfying his father's debt for the third time, emancipated from his father's household. Modern credit card companies can only dream of ancient debt law. Please repeat after me. Si pater filium ter venum duit. Filius a patre liberesto. If the father should sell his son three times, the son shall be free from his father. A small step on the road to human freedom by way of a mixed condition. The condition with its present subjunctive starts off as a future less vivid, but concludes with a future imperative and thus rather more vividly. And not to complain, I did mention that mixed conditions were possible. Here's another gem. This one derives from the tenth table and will allow us to look at a couple more future imperatives. Please repeat. Hominem mortuum in urbe ne sepelito newe urito. A hominem mortuum is not just a dead man, but a dead man in the accusative case. So probably the direct object of whatever verbs are headed our way. Please repeat. Sepelio, sepelire, sepeliwi, sepultum. Conjugation identification. Fourth, this cheerful verb means to bury. You can find sepel in the English word sepulchre, a place where we bury people. And please repeat. Uro urere usi ustum. Conjugation identification. Third, uro means to burn. Compare the ust in combustible. And you have probably already noticed the odd toe endings on the verbs in our sentence. Please repeat. Sepelito. 
and urito. Those are future imperatives in either the second or third person singular. But let's look at all the future imperatives as long as we're on the topic. Thou shalt bury, sepelito. Thou shalt burn, urito. Why the difference in pronunciation? Fourth conjugation has a long I, and the third has a short I. And the second person plural? We can make the singular plural by adding te to the singular commands. Ye shall bury sepelitote, and ye shall burn uritote. The third person singular looks just like the second person singular. He shall bury sepelito. He shall burn urito. The third person plural ending is unto, which again we apply to the stem. They shall bury sepeliunto, and they shall burn urunto. Such future commands can be made negative with ne. So ne sepelito means either thou shalt not bury or he shall not bury. And newe, the we ending, is equivalent to the conjunction or, except it's attached to the end of a word rather than put in front of the word. And it's attached to a word that means not, so the best way to handle the two of them will be to use the English nor, which is likewise a combination of not and or. I think you're ready for the full weight of the law. Please repeat. Hominem mortuum in urbe ne sepelito ne urito. Do you think we should go with second person singular or third person singular? Inasmuch as I see no subjects and it represents a general prohibition, I'm going to go with the second person singular which would in archaic English be thou. So, a dead man in the urbe, that is, in the city, and that would be the city of Rome. Thou shalt not bury, nor shalt thou burn. Or, if we put that in better English word order, thou shalt not bury, nor shalt thou burn, a dead man in the city. Please repeat. Hominem mortuum in urbe, Ne sepelito, ne urito. The plebeians sometimes broke this law, as, for example, when carried away by emotion, they burned the corpse of Julius Caesar in the Forum and burned down the Senate House in the process, thus providing a good example of why the law was necessary in the first place. Lest you think that these future imperatives appear only in Roman law, let's look at late Roman legislation on divorce. The formulation is by a jurist named Gaius who flourished in the 2nd century AD. According to the 24th book of Justinian's 6th century AD, Digest of Roman Law, Gaius was the source of the words a husband used to divorce his wife. Marriage, I might add, was complex. But ending a marriage was relatively simple insofar as husbands and wives kept their properties in separate accounts. And the husband was required to return all property brought into the marriage by the wife. 
This had other implications, as we'll soon see. But ending the marriage was, according to what we are told by Gaius, simple. The husband just had to say the magic words. Please repeat them. In repudiis autem, id est renuntiatione, comprobata sunt haec verba, tuas res tibi habeto, item haec, tuas res tibi agito, I think you will recognize the second-person singular imperatives, and we see that the second conjugation verb, habio habere, habui habitum, retains its characteristically long e in habeto, thou shalt have. As always, after grammar and syntax, the biggest obstacle will be vocabulary. Repudium is a neuter noun of the second declension. It means casting off, but is equivalent to divortium, the Latin word that gives us our English divorce. We can see the root in our verb repudiate, which means also to cast away from oneself. Autem is a conjunction or transition word that helps bind one thought to another. It's equivalent to however. On the other hand, in as much as we read an extract, it doesn't add much value. It est, we use in English all the time, although we generally use the abbreviation IE, even when we're speaking. We can translate it est as it is or that is, and then, as in English, we get a clarification. Renuntiatione, another word for divorce or casting off but a word that refers more specifically to the speech act of renouncing something, in this case, a marriage, a wife, a shared life together. This is so sad. Renunciation is a derivative that survives pretty much intact in English. But let's go to the verb. Please repeat. Comprobo, comprobare, comprobavi, comprobatum. Conjugation identification, first. Comprobo means to approve of. The verb appears in the perfect passive indicative. Comprobata sunt. What is the subject? Werba. The neuter plural nominative of werbum werbi, which means not our more specific verb, but instead the more general word. Werba are words. And haik werba are what? Ik haik hoek. Yes, these words. Please repeat. In repudiis, autum, id est renuntiatione, comprobata sunt haec verba. Translation. In casting off, however, that is, in renouncing, these words have been approved of. And so we arrive at the magic formula. Magic formula number one. Please repeat, but only if your spouse is not around. Tuas res tibi habeto. Short? Yes, simple? Perhaps not so much. Habeto, thou shalt have. Yes, okay, but what? 
tuas res, your accusative plural things. Thou shalt have your things. In other words, take your property. But what about tibi? This is the dative form of the second person singular pronoun. We declined it when reading Catullus. Tu is you in the nominative. Tui is genitive of you. Tibi is dative to or for you. Te is the accusative form of you. And te is also an ablative form, by, with, or from you. Please repeat. Tu, tui, tibi, te, te. And another use of the dative is to indicate in reference to whom an action should take place. Please repeat. Tuas res tibi habeto. Thou shalt have your things tibi for yourself. In other words, you'll get what belongs to you. Thus implying that the husband will no longer act as caretaker of the property, so it's time to leave. The alternative formulation said something similar. Please repeat. Item hike. Tuas res tibi agito. Item is an adverb that means likewise, and hike is a neuter plural repeating the idea of hike werba. But you have to supply werba on your own the second time around. So, likewise, these words. And then we get magic formula number two. Please repeat. Tuas res tibi agito. This time our verb is ago agora egi actum, a verb that means do and can be used as such to indicate any number of actions. Can you translate agito? Thou shalt do. Thou shalt do what? Thou shalt do your things. Tuas res. For yourself. Tibi, or thou shalt conduct your own affairs by yourself. In other words, I'm done. You're free. You've been repudiated, renounced, divorced. And one more time, please repeat after me. In repudiis autem, id est renuntiatione, comprobata sunt haec verba. Tuas res tibi habeto. Item haec. Tuas res tibi agito. <clears throat> in casting off, however, that is, in renouncing, these words have been approved. Thou shalt have your things for yourself. Likewise these. Thou shalt do your things for yourself. Part of the challenge in reading Latin is getting into an alien mindset. These formulations are not familiar to us. If, on the other hand, your significant other came to you and said, Dear, we need to talk. I think we've been growing in different directions. What would we think? Uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Such formulations would be as bizarre to a Roman as, Thou shalt have your things for yourself, are to us. And that's part of what makes even straightforward Latin both rewarding and a challenge. It's interesting to get into the thought patterns and language that informs our own at almost every point, while still remaining rather different. 
Our last example, also from marital law, will illustrate this point. In a happy marriage, do husbands and wives give each other thoughtful gifts? In early Roman law, it was illegal for a husband and wife to give each other presents. And it was certainly discouraged, even as late as the 6th century A.D., as we read in the Digest. The 3rd century A.D. jurist Ulpian is quoted as stating, and please repeat after me, Moribus apudnos receptum est, ne intervirum et uxorum, donationes valerent. Most moris is a crucial third declension masculine word that means manner, custom, practice. We use the Latin original when we talk about a society's mores. But for the Romans, ancestral custom was more than king. In the United States, we love whatever is new. There are laws about how long a product can carry the word new before the company is compelled to remove the word news, un the word news unfair sales advantage from the packaging. In ancient Rome, on the other hand, they loved what was old, what was traditional. To call something new was to call it revolutionary, and revolutionary was worse than new. That was sedition, treason. So mos was about as strong a recommendation as you could get in Roman culture. We begin with a nice ablative plural, by customs. In other words, according to our customs. This is underscored by apudnos, which means among us. It est among us Romans. Please repeat. Recipio recipera, recapi receptum. Conjugation identification, third I.O. Recipio means receive or take upon oneself. Note the nice passive form. Please repeat. Moribus apudnos. Receptum est. Translation, it has been received among us according to our customs. That sounds serious. And then we get the prohibition couched in a, negative, in a clause of negative purpose. Hence, ne plus the imperfect subjunctive. Please repeat. Ne intervirum et uxorum. Donationes valerent. Inter is a preposition that means between. It takes the accusative, hence virum et uxorum, man and wife, or husband and wife. And donationes, you can probably guess. Those are the gifts, the donations. And the verb, valerent. Please repeat, valia valere, wallowi walitum. Conjugation identification, second. Walio means to be strong and healthy, and that which is strong prevails. A strong law prevails and remains valid. Let's try the whole statement. Please repeat. Moribus apud nos receptum est. Ne intervirum et uxorem. Donationes valerent. 
according to the customs among us, it was received, or we took it upon ourselves, that gifts between a husband and wife were not valid. The jurist goes on to explain that husband and wife need to keep their property in separate accounts. Gifts would muddle the ledgers. And, at the end of the day, what else can you count? Ah, the romance of the law. Et nunc linguae latinae amatores, et juris romani amatores. Potestis omnes exire, ut linguam latinam discatis. Gratias vobis ago et donec nos iterum viderimus, curate ut valeatis.